Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Katz, a Navy veteran who works as a stunt performer, stand-in, and voiceover actress in Hollywood. Nicole is also active in the kitten rescue community and is currently co-developing a docu-series about animal rescue. Nicole, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you and I have known each other casually through veteran organizations here in Los Angeles, but this is our first time really sitting down and me hearing about your military experience. So why don't you start us off by telling us where you're from originally and where you grew up? I was born in Ventura, California, and I grew up in Fresno, California, which is the central part of California that most people just drive through and ignore. And I am now in LA again, and it's been home to me for almost a decade now um, since I got out of the service. And I am a California girl through and through. Take us on the journey from Fresno to LA. What happened in between that? Did you grow up in a military family? I did, but we didn't um, travel. I was born after my dad separated from the Navy, and both of my grandfathers were in the military. One was Air Force and the other was Army. So there's definitely a military presence in my life growing up. And my dad separated from the Navy in San Diego, and my dad is from L.A. originally, so they kind of stuck around there. And then they got jobs up in Fresno and that's where we we spent most of the time. Fresno is a very different world than LA for sure. It's it's the Midwest of California. <laughs> <laughs> so did you always know you were going to join the Navy? I did not. After high school, I had all these big dreams about college, but there wasn't really um, a financial plan in place for me to achieve those dreams. Mm -hmm. And my parents were, you know, middle class working. I had a couple of siblings and they were kind of like, you're going to have to figure this one out on your own. And so I talked to my dad a little bit about the military and the Navy. And he was like, if you go in, go, go Navy, you know, it's, I know a lot about it. I know how it was, you know, he was in during a different era, obviously, but he encouraged me to look at that as an option. And when I went to enlist, I did all of my homework and I made sure I knew what jobs that I wanted. And if they weren't going to give me those, I was just going to say bye. <laughs> and they weren't used to having somebody come in who did their research and was prepared and was willing to say no. So I kind of negotiated myself around a bit until I, they were able to get me the job I wanted. I did well in the ASVAB. So I ended up enlisting as an intelligence specialist. And that's basically like an intel analyst for the Navy. And I was given a top secret security clearance, which was post 9-11. It wasn't the easiest to get, <laughs> um, wow. especially because my mother was Canadian at the time. And they wanted you to have both parents be American citizens. And my mom was a dual and I was a dual. And they basically told me I could only get my clearance if, if I gave up my Canadian citizenship. So I did, I gave it up so that I could get my, my security clearance. And I recently got it back, which was some, a goal of mine <laughs> after the military was to get it back. But that was an unexpected hurdle that I faced when I got in. They're like, you can't be Canadian. And I'm like, really? Out of all of the countries on earth, you got a problem with Canada? Okay. That is such a huge choice to have to give up part of your citizenship. So overall, what did your family think about you joining the Navy? 
my mom really didn't like the idea. <laughs> she, uh, she thought that I was, um, kind of running away from what I really wanted to do. And, and, uh, you know, she kind of thought of it as like an excuse to like, uh, she knew that I was trying to finance like my dreams in the arts, but she didn't want me to ever like stop doing it and completely refocus. And she was also scared for me because it was, you know, during um, OIF and crazy things were happening. And she just, she knew though, that I've always been a very determined person. So no matter what she said, it probably wouldn't change my mind. Um, but she was very outspoken about her concerns my dad was also hesitant, but also really proud of me and supportive of me. And he, he was very touched by the fact that I was going into the Navy and that he was also in the Navy and that we would always have that connection together. Um, but they were both um, hesitant because of the time in which I did enlist. And as things were going south for me in terms of the early days in the military, they were very worried about me and, and, um, were questioning whether I had made the right choice and things like that. And I was like, I always come back to the motto of, I didn't come this far to just come this far. <laughs> so that was what I always thought about when I was going through all of it. And, and it helped me justify my reasons for why I was there and where I was going. So share with us the early days and things going south, because they started off pretty south. My boot camp experience was not very traditional. So I went into boot camp at Great Lakes in Illinois um, later in the year in 2005. And I was 19 when I went in because I tried college for a little bit. And then when I ran out of money, it was like, mm -hmm. okay, this is my path. Boot camp was interesting. When you're in a co-ed division, which means there's male and female, there's supposed to be at least one female representative in the drill instructor, RDC, whatever title your branch associates of those positions. There's supposed to be at least one female to balance it out since there are females in the division. Well, when I got there, we had a female chief who was um, in the Navy. They're called RDCs, recruit division commanders, instead of uh, drill sergeants. And um, she got sick halfway through our training and, and had to leave. So we were left with just these two petty officers, males, who were overseeing our division. And they took advantage of their position. And it was very unfortunate. And they ended up basically making all of the females do constant exercising and constant everything. And they would just have the guys watch us. And it was really, we didn't realize that there was something wrong happening at the time. We thought, you know, this is just hazing. This is what you have to go through as a woman, but it got really bad. And the guys were very uncomfortable watching us have to perform all of these physical to the point where like we would scrape the skin off of our elbows and our knees from just constant friction and like we'd be bleeding and bruised. And it was not normal. It was definitely way over the top. And we didn't say anything because we, again, thought this was normal. And finally, what happened was you have to go to medical every once in a while to get vaccines and certain things through your um, time in boot camp. And we half of the girls had to go one day and we all went, showed up at medical and medical was looking at us like something happened, like 
you guys all look terrible. What What's going on? And we were like, isn't this how you were supposed to look? And they were like, no, what's happening? So we started talking to them about what had been going on. And they did exams on us and took pictures of us. And then there was a senior chief, a female senior chief who was in charge of the building we were living in. She showed up and then started asking us questions like individually. She'd pull us away from the group and our RDCs didn't know what was going on. She told, they told us to like, keep it, you know, between us because of confidentiality and things like that. And there ended up being an investigation and M the MAs, which are the Navy version of the MPs, came in and took statements. And it was a big deal. But unfortunately, a lot of us got injured because of that. And we were able to finish our training. But like myself, I ended up injuring my back and my hip. And I didn't know that I had really hurt it that bad because I figured this is just what you're going through. You're just in pain. You just have to deal with it. So that was kind of, you know, a rough start to the military. <laughs> this is basic training. Yes. This is before I even made it to my first command. How long is Navy basic training? It was about three months. And that happened the entire, th- well, halfway through? It happened, it happened about halfway through. So um, it happened for... An eternity? About six weeks, but it felt like forever. Yeah, for sure. And how many women were in the co-ed group with you? There was a about 20 of us. And were you having side conversations of like, that was intense or? Oh yeah. We were like, is it supposed to be like this? And we would look at each other, you know, cause we had to shower together. Right, you have to do right. everything together right? and be like, we look like we've been through car accidents. And we'd look at the other recruits. Cause you know, you march around and we'd be like, they don't look really quite as rough as we do. And the guys felt really bad about it. They, you know, they were constantly like trying to sneakily communicate with us to see, you know, are you guys okay? We don't want to be doing this. They're telling us to do this. We're not, you know, trying to like be macho guys over you, you know, the men in our division were actually really supportive, but again, we were all really ignorant. We didn't realize that this was not a normal way. And To me, that reflected how kind of badly the system perpetuates these uh, hazing rituals, but also these expectations that women have to pay these dues in order to be um, like full-fledged service members or whatever, that we have to run the extra mile (laughs) to um, earn our spot. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me going in, and it definitely kept me more alert going into my first duty station but I was also like physically completely wiped out. And like, it was hard to go to my first duty station in that way. Well, I had to go to actually, I had to go to a school, which was my training school and then go to my duty station. And my, my training school was one of the most difficult ones in the Navy for Intel. It was very intense and stuff happened there too. And it was just like, what is happening? (laughs) What is going on? Like, you know, I just, I really wanted to have like a normal military experience, but it didn't start out that way. And it didn't continue that way. When I got to ACE, my A school in Virginia beach from Illinois, it was a very intense school. You're there for about 10 hours a day in school learning. You can't take anything out of what they call the schoolhouse, the building you're in, because it's all classified materials. And it's uh, there's very strict protocols of entering and exiting and things like that. And the attrition rate was incredibly high. We lost a lot of people along the way in terms of um, 
the academic standing that you had to maintain. And this was about a six-month school, I want to say. So during my class rotation through the school, um, they had issues with people taking classified materials outside of the building and hiding them in the barracks and things like that because it was such an intense school, but you can only study at the building. You can't take anything back. So they were constantly doing searches of our rooms and digging through all of our stuff and those would be random. So you'd come back and like your, your whole barracks would be just trashed. And of course you have to get it all back ready, you know, for inspections and things like that. So that was a lot of added stress on top of just going to a very intense school. And I ended up being the honor graduate for my class. I ended up having the highest like score or whatever. I was really proud of myself because it was really the hardest school I've ever done. And I've done a lot of school. <laughs> so I was I was really proud of myself. During that time, there was an incident where we trained with Marines for this school. There was the Navy and the Marines together. And sometimes mixing the branches together is a great thing. And sometimes it's not the greatest thing. And you get conflicts in different different ways, just from procedural conflicts to just mindset conflicts. Um, Marines have a different mindset about things. And they are all men. And the Navy, they were all male for the Marines intel thing. The Navy program was co-ed. Some of the Marines started like targeting some of the women in the Navy class that I was in and, you know, targeting them in a really aggressive sexual or physical way. And it's really hard to deal with that (laughs) When you're in such close proximity and there's only so many people in your chain of command who can really help you. And when you're in the barracks at a school, like you're really unsupervised for most of it. It's kind of like a college dorm. And so there was an incident with my my rack mate at the time, and it was very traumatic. And the chain of command really failed us in helping. They could have done preventative measures, but punitive measures after really fell through the cracks. Basically, there was a lot of blame put on the women because our chain of command was all male and nothing really happened to the people who were responsible. And their response was to just move me and her as opposed to moving these these guys, you know, to another part of the base or another base or kicking them out of the program that we were the ones that had to move and change and do everything to try to make things better. And by that point, having gone through everything at boot camp and then through this A school, I was I was a pretty jaded sailor, especially about, you know, you hear about the sexism, but it had just been so rampant where I ended up that I, I felt pretty jaded at that point in time. And going into my first command station, I was just kind of, I felt really numb. And I was upset about that because I had worked so hard. I had gotten through that really hard situation at boot. I had pulled my weight through this A school and gotten, you know, honor grad. I went through my C school and got honor grad and my C school was even harder. And now I'm like finally out and I felt really numb. And I was like, okay, I guess I have to like go do this job now (laughs) for real out there in the Navy. And I had been in school for almost a year of my enlistment by then. And that was probably the hardest part of my service up to that point. And Luckily, when I got to my first duty station, which was a squadron um, at NAS Oceana, and everyone was much more professional, and I didn't encounter a lot of the bad things that I had encountered through my training. And 
when I made it to my favorite squadron, which was VFA 94 out of Lemoore, California, which is not my favorite place, I really found my stride in the military and I felt like I was doing my job well and I felt I was in a command that respected me and I was, even though my chain of command was really small and I was the only woman in my division and in my immediate chain of command, there was definitely a different kind of perspective about dealing with sexism and harassment and things like that at that point. And I got to train at the Top Gun Flight School in Fallon, Nevada. And my job was basically to brief pilots before they went on missions and to give them as much information about what they were going to encounter while they flew. And that was a big deal because I was 19 when I started it and I was briefing commanders and lieutenants and all these high ranking officers. My XO, my CO were also pilots. So I would be briefing them too. And I only encountered two female pilots my entire career in the military, but pretty much always men. And me being this little girl, and I felt like a little girl up there giving these briefs. And I really tried to make them my own because you have to find ways to keep these guys' attention and keep them interested and also have them respect what you're saying. This was before like the meme was a big deal, like memes were everywhere. So I was like throwing early memes into my briefs and just to keep their attention or like make sure that they were interested in what I was saying. And and it worked out pretty well. I, I was able to do my job effectively. They were able to do their jobs effectively, but there was still... I had to prove myself over and over again just because of the nature of that job. Nothing else after that has been as stressful as that particular part of the job. Like I can talk to anybody now and pretty much be chill about it, you know, and working in entertainment, all those memories come back. Like if I have to talk to a high up executive or something, because I just that was what I did for years in the military. So I briefed pilots. I was also responsible for um, essentially like like the black box of the plane and uploading images and maps and things like that for them. And I was also trained to be a targeteer. So I would literally put like the giant X on the map and be like, please put your ordinance here. If you don't put your ordinance here, it's going to be on the news and it's going to be a bad day. <laughs> and again, a ridiculous amount of responsibility for someone who was so young, but I was good at my job. So you know, I did it to the my best of my abilities. And at the time, the surge was happening uh, over in Iraq. And so it was just constant go, 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 go. And I had some really wonderful people that I worked with and trained with who were excellent, who stayed in and became chiefs and senior chiefs. And so I It started out really rough, but it ended with me feeling like I had proven myself and that I am strong and that I can endure a lot and that I had come a long way. And even though a lot of things tried to pull me down, I just kept going and showed what I could do and that I was a valuable asset at the time. It gave me a lot of skills that I could translate later on into what eventually became my film work and my TV work, which was my passion before I went into the military. I was a theater nerd and a choir nerd, and I actually was in the Navy choir in boot camp um, because they have you like audition on like 
day three when you've had no sleep. They just stand you up and they're like, can you sing? Can you play an instrument? And you just kind of like sleepily raise your hand and then they ask you to do it. (laughs) Like right then and there. Yeah. And I was like, sure, why not? If I can sing during boot camp, that'll be my favorite, you know, that that'll be my therapy getting through this. So I got into the choir and I sang for so basically in boot camp, if you get in the choir, you have to sing at all the graduations uh, up until you graduate. So it was kind of bittersweet because you get to see all these people graduating, but it's not your turn yet. (laughs) But you get to sing for them. So that was fun. And I got to sing for some VIPs that came through, like the chief of naval operations. And and that kept me going and wanting to keep doing arts through my service. And when I got out, I was like, now that I have my GI Bill, I'm going to study film because that's what I wanted to do before. And I never lost sight of that goal. And the military gave me the means to be able to do that. So in the end, I'm grateful. It was tough. And there are some scars, but I'm very grateful. It led me to be able to, you know, meet this amazing community of veterans in the entertainment industry and meet my husband, who's a veteran. And I work in stunts and technical advising, making sure that things look as legit as possible on TV for vets and and for things like that. Not that they always listen to us, which is par for the course, but (laughs) it opened a lot of doors for me. So I'm I'm grateful. Ultimately, I know that was a lot. (laughs) My jaw's on the floor for half of it. So going back to basic training, what became of that investigation? Did those two guys get in trouble? Yeah, they were removed. I don't know if they were removed from the military, but they were removed from their positions there. And they were no longer our RDCs. They were no longer in charge. I don't, I honestly don't know what happened to them because they kept it very hush hush and they didn't want us talking about it a lot. Um, And we had an issue with an instructor too, who was similar, but there was some kind of punitive action that happened, but I honestly don't know the details beyond that. I forgot to mention that Hurricane Katrina also happened when I was in boot camp. And we didn't find out about Hurricane Katrina hitting until maybe two weeks after because they they don't let you like you're not exposed to the news or resources. But what had happened was the Red Cross was trying to reach people in boot camp because their families had been displaced or lost or injured or who knows what. And the Red Cross was saying, we have to talk to these people. And a Red Cross representative showed up. And that was another really shocking day in boot camp because you have this Red Cross person showing up and saying, this huge hurricane happened. People who lived in this area have likely lost their homes. Your families are displaced. We have these communications from these people who are trying to reach these sailors, you know, and you have all these recruits just going, what? My home's gone. My family's like, what? And then they finally like played us a little bit of news footage showing like the hurricane and what had happened. And so that was happening kind of around the same time as all the bad stuff started happening. And there was there was a lot going on with all of us mentally and emotionally while going through basic. And so when the senior chief came and and she just started talking, asking us questions like, did you speak up or did you? And we were all like, no, we didn't feel like we could speak up. We thought this was normal. And she assured us that it was not. And as soon as she did that, we started being more proactive in at least caring for each other and looking out for each other. So that was a lot, <laughs> but, but there was, there was some kind of punishment that happened, you know, in the end, we all graduated, we all made it through. So even the ones that had lost their homes to Hurricane Katrina made it through. So I think that's a testament 
And in terms of your job in the military, because you were the valedictorian in your classes and because you excelled at what you did in briefing pilots, having access to classified information, being responsible for giving coordinates for missions, when it came time to re-enlist, did your command try to get you to re-up? Because a war was still, is still plowing ahead. They started with the the re-enlistment spiels probably two years before I was even like up for it. They really wanted to keep me. They threw all the bonuses at me. I mean, they threw everything they could at me to try to get me to stay, but I knew that that wasn't the path that I wanted. And then they offered me Mm -hmm. some like sweet government contract jobs at like the NSA or the DIA. And I just, I wanted to have a life. And I, I know that if you go down that path, you don't have any privacy and Someone could show up at your door anytime, like all the stories about, you know, them listening in and knowing everything about you. That stuff has basis in reality. And it's, you know, just going through the the security process to get my TS clearance really opened up eyes to me about like how my privacy would just, I mean, it's gone anyway, because I had that, but you know, I, I wanted to have a life. I didn't, and I wanted to be creative and that path would not allow me to do that. But a part of me always wonders like what I would have done if I had done that and stayed with it. But I know in my heart that I made the right the right choice. <laughs> yeah, I did something very similar when I got out uh, in 03. I studied the arts, dance, theater, moved to New York, so, and I've never regretted it. I know that getting out was the right choice for me too. So uh, when you transitioned out, was it challenging? Was it pretty easy for you? You came back to California. I actually got out on my birthday, which was a nice like little birthday present to myself. Oh, that's <laughs> memorable. It was a challenging transition for me. I thought it would be a lot easier. I really did because I thought I still like knew what it was to be a civilian and like that I could just flip the switch and be right back. But I, I had, I didn't realize that I had been through so much that I was a very different person. When I went back to school, I started at city college because I wanted to make my GI bill last as long as possible. And I love community colleges. I think they're incredibly valuable. And I, I actually had some of my best learning experiences there, but I was also surrounded by people who are a lot younger, you know, fresh out of high school, you know, their biggest problem was that their cell phone's not working right. And I just couldn't not relate to anybody around me. It was really difficult, like sitting just in a lecture hall. I would get so distracted by the people around me and what they were doing and just how they were so focused on just such trivial things and how it was like life or death to them, you know? And I'm just like, what is, you know, I cannot identify with that. I'm never going to go back to being that way. In a way, there was a sense of relief because I nothing stressed me out at that point. I was, I was a good student and I didn't have problems academically, but socially I could not relate to anybody really around me. Luckily, I had a good core group of friends at the time who were there before, during and after my service. So, you know, I had like a peer group to go to, but I didn't know how to talk about my time in. I didn't know who to talk to about it. I felt like I needed to talk about it at least a little bit, but I didn't really have an S an outlet. So I put all of that into my art and what I was doing 
and learning at the time. So in a way, it made me a better artist uh, and really helped guide my decisions. I didn't make as many frivolous decisions with school or life in general. And it really made me realize what was most valuable to me and what really made me happy. And so it was really easy for me to cut out all the stuff that didn't make me happy (laughs) at that point, because I wasn't going to spend any more time doing that. I wasn't going to spend any more time doing stuff that made me unhappy. I went back and I originally went back for theater because my background is in musical theater. And then I transitioned to film because I realized that's really where I wanted to be. And having roots in LA, I wanted to come back to LA and and be a, a female storyteller and offer that perspective down here. And that's where I am now, <laughs> doing more of that. And I tried to really insert myself into all of the facets of entertainment where I felt that my skills would be valuable and appreciated. So I I love acting. I love being a storyteller in front of the camera. That's one of my favorite things is being part of the storytelling process and how important stories are to people all over the world and to the human experience. And being a part of that is just magic to me. So I used a lot of my theater training to work in acting and then and then that graduated into stunts and doing specialized performing like that and now I'm pursuing a voiceover career which has been really delightful and exciting and I love doing that obviously with how many video games there are and video games being the prominent medium in entertainment right now and with so many of those being military games having a military background is super valuable and being a woman with a military background uh, there's not a lot of us in the video game production side. So a couple of years ago, started doing mocap. Performance capture is actually what you do in the mocap technology, but most people know it as mocap. So um, I went into that and just growing my skills as much as possible um, so I can be a valuable performer to whoever will hire me. <laughs> so one of the benefits of living in Los Angeles is there's a great concentration of vets here, but there's a lot of resources to for veterans to get their foot in the door with the entertainment industry, which blew my mind. For me, in the military, I always felt like such a fish out of water because I was an artist. So then when I moved to LA, and then I saw these opportunities for veterans in the arts, I was like, what? And that's how you and I met with the Veteran Writing Project at the Writers Guild Foundation. Um, And if you're listening to this, check them out. It's a free year-long writing program where you get mentored by actual TV film writers. And uh, we've all got stories to share and they help you. And that your husband also did the program. That was a door into the the business and it introduced us and us meaning you and me, but also to other vets. And it's like, who knew all these vets were into the creative arts? And it's a great alumni community you can take those skills that nobody else has had and it's something new to bring into the room. Did you know that you had this stunt background within you? I did not. Uh, I was always more of an athletic type of person and never really shied away from like the more aggressive, I guess, for lack of a better word, sports. And in my early twenties, I was doing like paintball and things, you know, things like that. And maybe it was just my chain of command, but we spent a lot of time on the range and just shooting and, Qualing, doing quals and things like that. And it just became really comfortable with weapons handling and things like that. And, and so when I got out and I knew I wanted to be a performer, but when I got to LA and again, really amazing veteran resources, I learned that there really, really wasn't a lot of women with the skill set who could do this for film and TV. And so I saw it as an opportunity for myself and I trained more and 
tried to prep myself as best as I could to go into this kind of new realm of acting that I wasn't familiar with. But I also joined a group of really amazing vets led by a veteran um, who used to be Marine One for a couple of the presidents and um, working with some special forces guys and former Rangers and SEALs. And they just really welcomed me, which was kind of surprising for me a little bit because, you know, a lot of the frictions that I saw when I was in, I didn't see out in the veteran groups. And it was, I felt really proud to be one of the few women because at the beginning there was only two women on the roster. um, And I was the only one that was an actual veteran. So that was, you know, something that I, I wanted to at least bring some awareness to. And we work with TV productions to remind them that because a lot of times they'll ask for a stunt team and they'll specify that they just want men. And we'll have to remind them that in this situation, in the real world, that women would be part of this. And a lot of times they'll be like, oh yeah, we didn't think of that. Yeah. Bring a couple women out. You know, we've been working to try to change that visual narrative uh, in TV, at least, um, to show more women in not just like military combat scenes, but also in SWAT and cop type positions or, you know, civilian type specialty forces too. And also with firefighting and, you know, all these things that have been predominantly male on TV, we're trying to change the opinions of some, and some are really open to it and some aren't, but we're working on them. Love it. So I think part of Hollywood has a lot of responsibility for how women are perceived in positions like that. And especially in the military, which is one reason I want to write, um, bring visibility to the stories of women. And authenticity, because it feels like there's definitely not, that's missing. (laughs) Agreed. So with that, do you ever get the comments of you don't look like a veteran? No, we we need real veterans. Girl, constantly. Um, (laughs) Me too. It's so frustrating. Um, And it's going to take time to change those minds. But yeah, um, I used to get really upset about it at the beginning, like really kind of angry and upset about it. But now I've come to be like, okay, this is an ignorance and I just need to like open their eyes and educate and, you know, lead the way in that sense, but all the time, all the time. And because I'm married to a veteran, they automatically assume he's the vet and I'm not, I'm just the spouse and that I don't know anything about anything. And, and it, it is frustrating and you do have to prove yourself over and over and over again, repeat, you know, repetitively, but there is some change happening with that, at least that I've seen in real time on set. So that gives me hope. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your fostering, the world of animals in your life. Oh, yeah. So as a kid, my family was always the family that rescued the neighborhood animals or did what's called TNR, which is trap, neuter, and release. So trapping the neighborhood cats and taking them to get fixed so that there wouldn't be as many, you know, wild cats running around our neighborhood to try to do population control and take care of the strays that were around. That was just the mindset of my family. It was sort of like communal that way. And we're all animal lovers um, from the very beginning. So I was raised around it. And with this mindset of we have a responsibility to these animals, we domesticated them. 
we should be taking care of them and figuring out a way to improve their lives and along with our lives so we can cohabitate in this wonderful world in which we live. I was doing rescuing like through high school. And then when I went into the military, I obviously couldn't really do it. But when I got out, I went right back into it. And I re-established relationships with rescues that, that I had worked with before. And when I moved down to LA, I started going to different adoption fairs and things like that to see who was out and see who is really providing a good community service. And I met with all these great organizations, but I really fell in love with Kitten Rescue LA. And you can visit them online at lakittenrescue.com. They do specialize in rescuing um, kittens, specifically neonatal kittens, which shelters can't take because they don't have enough staff. These babies require like feedings 24 hours around the clock, and they just don't have the staff to take care of these babies. And it usually happens when something's happened to the mother or the mother is too young to take care of them and they don't have anyone to bottle feed them. And so I started volunteering as a bottle feeder for Kitten Rescue LA and I think I had my first year, I had five kittens and because they're 24 hour jobs, it's, and I was living alone at the time. I couldn't really take on more than one cat at a time, but uh, it's super rewarding for me. They're super uh, vulnerable in that state and you really have to be careful. And that's when they rely on your care the most. And so it just meant the most to me to take care of them in that stage and really imprint on them that humans are good and kind and we want to take care of you too and form a bond. And they've all been adopted. I've never had a, a foster fail out of that system. I have two cats and a dog and they're all rescues. And my two cats are bottle fed cats that I rescued on my own that I found in the wilderness or just abandoned in different places. And I just developed special bonds with them and just could not see my life without them. So I've been volunteering with them since about 2013 is when I started. And then I also do some volunteering with the Pasadena Humane Society, and um, which is a really amazing organization, the Humane Society. I'm a huge fan. Uh, my husband and I are big animal lovers and we're just, we're always on the lookout. If we see an animal in distress, that's sort of like our call and we go and try to help. It's been a really meaningful relationship to have with the rescues here in LA. And so recently we partnered with a photographer, a pet photographer named Pamela Corey, who's really wonderful. I want everyone listening to this to go check out her stuff at Fur Family Photos on Instagram and furfamilyphotos.com. She's a skilled pet photographer and animal lover and rescuer as well. And I met her doing a fundraising calendar for animal rescue and animal rights. And my dog was going to be featured in the calendar. And she's like, well, do you have a cat too? You know, do they get along? We haven't really had a cat and a dog combo. And I was like, my cat is the chillest cat ever. Let's bring him in. So we did a photo shoot with my cat and my dog together. And it was really beautiful and amazing to see. So recently her and my husband and I decided to develop a docuseries about animal rescue and the impact these animals have on people's lives and also the impact people have on their lives. And I think a lot of people out there have been touched by a rescue animal. And so we want to try to tell those stories. So that's something we're working on and hopefully can share with everybody. Oh, I'm right there with you. I rescued a five-year-old Cocker Spaniel mix in May, and he has completely enhanced my life. And I just love him so much. 
In wrapping up our conversation today, I'd like to ask all the guests if a young woman were to approach you today and say that she's thinking about joining the military, what would you say to her? Oh, I, I have I would have a lot of things to say to her. Um, none of it would be discouraging. I just would want to ask her, you know, if she's done her research, if she knows which branch she feels fits her personality and her dreams and and goals the best. I would ask about, you know, what her ultimate goals are in life and if the military is a great way to help reach those. And I would also, I would impart on her that she's stronger than she thinks and she will be able to get through things that seem impossible. Like it's, you have that within you. And even if you don't feel it now, you, you'll realize it um, with time. I would always encourage people to serve their country and serve others. Um, I think it's an important selfless thing that a lot of young people could really benefit from, especially during tumultuous times like these. (laughs) But ultimately I would support whatever her decision was and just encourage her to be true to herself and be as prepared as possible. Ah, beautifully said. Nicole, thank you for sharing your experiences with us and for sharing a bit of insight about working in the non-traditional world of entertainment. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.